Welcome everyone to The Elevator Pitch, an ATS Breathe Easy podcast. On this podcast, we talk to the scientists behind innovative new studies to get their elevator pitch, the big picture story behind their research. Importantly, we explore how these studies can change the way we care for patients in the ICU. Dr. Singh, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My name is Garandeep Singh. I'm a faculty member at the University of Michigan. Clinically, I'm a nephrologist, but I hold a bunch of titles because I have several different appointments. My primary appointment is actually in the Department of Learning Health Sciences at the University of Michigan, which kind of focuses on blending informatics and implementation science. Um, I hold an operational role where I help oversee our health systems, implementation of predictive analytics and machine learning. And then, you know, I, I, I run a research lab focused on kind of this space of developing AI models, but also kind of evaluating uh, and thinking about implementation related issues around their use in clinical practice. Today, we're here to discuss your study, external validation of a widely implemented proprietary sepsis prediction model in hospitalized patients. The results from this intriguing study were published in JAMA IM last year. Dr. Singh, could you give us your elevator pitch for the study? The way we got into doing this study is that operationally, we wanted to understand how well sepsis model could help us risk stratify our patients with sepsis and to basically deliver early treatment to them. We had some active quality improvement efforts going on here. And so in my operational role, where I oversee our clinical AI governing committee called the Clinical Intelligence Committee, we had gotten kind of communication with our hospital sepsis committee to basically help them think through how this tool could be used and how well it was currently being used with the kind of operating threshold that we had for generating alerts. What we ended up doing was we took a cohort of patients over about an 11 month period. We took prospectively calculated scores, but we looked at them retrospectively across about 28,000 patients and a total of 38,000 hospitalizations. And we looked to see how well this score could predict the onset of sepsis. And when we looked at the ability of this score to identify those patients, we tried to figure out how well is it doing in separating those patients who are going to have sepsis from those patients who won't. We looked at the model's discrimination and calibration, trying to figure that out. The model had an area under the curve of uh, 0.63, which means that 63% of the time, when you take a patient who has sepsis and a random patient who doesn't have sepsis, the model gives a higher score to those patients who are going to develop sepsis as compared to those who aren't. Interestingly, when we looked at the three-hour period after you develop sepsis, and we include those scores in the model, the model does much better, and it has an area under the curve of 80%. And the main reason we tried to do these two analyses was to illustrate issues around implementation and also to try to you know, harmonize our results with other evaluations of, of that model that have been done previously. That's great. There's a lot to dive in there. You mentioned harmonizing the results with previous results. And so one of the things that kind of stands out in the study is the big discrepancy that you noted in the AUC compared to prior reports. What do you think accounts for this discrepancy? So there's really two things. One is that you you have to pick how you define a time zero 
when you're dealing with any of these kinds of early warning system scores. Because once that time zero happens, that both defines that a patient has had the outcome, uh, but also that further scores at that point probably may not be relevant because you already know that the outcome has occurred. But the big difference, I think, is that in prior work, folks had not excluded scores from after the onset of sepsis. And so that largely drives the uh, discrepancy. As a clinician, if you're like, well, what does that mean? Here's what that means. So the sepsis three criteria for sepsis includes antibiotics as part of the outcome definition, which means that once you have met the outcome definition for sepsis, you are on antibiotics. Similarly, the CDC criteria also includes prescription of antibiotics as part of the outcome definition. So if you're taking scores from after you've met the outcome, then you're actually including scores from the model in your calculation that have happened after sepsis was diagnosed, or in other words, after antibiotics were started. So you're not telling the clinician anything new that the clinician doesn't already know? Essentially, I think that's the general idea is that if you're taking predictions from after the patient's on antibiotics, even if those were newly started, of course, the model is going to think that you have sepsis, you just started antibiotics. And what makes it particularly tricky with this model uh, in our evaluation was that, uh, although we didn't realize it at the time, you know, antibiotics are a predictor in this model. In fact, if you prescribe antibiotics, someone's sepsis score will go up. The way the model was trained, it was trained to predict starting of antibiotics. There's not an easy solution to how you handle this. On one hand, you do want to predict you know, who has the outcome. And in the case of sepsis, where you can't use the you know, existing rule-based mechanisms in real time, having a sepsis label, even after the fact and closer to real time may be relevant. So I've had some great conversations with Epic. And you know, one of their you know, recommendations, which I think is a good recommendation, is that you know, they are encouraging health systems to disable alerts when the sepsis has already been recognized. But I guess you know, all I would say is I completely agree with that. But then ideally, when you evaluate the model, you should also ignore those predictions after that time point as well. And I think that basically accounts for reported discrepancy between our reported findings. That kind of illustrates the tricky part about AUC as the be all and all kind of measure of the performance of the model. And in your paper, you kind of had other metrics that you used to judge the clinical relevance of the model. Can you tell us more about metrics besides AUC that are important in evaluating these types of models? Yeah, so as you allude to, error under the curve is not the end-all be-all. It's often one that people hone in on because people are used to reporting high AUCs. And so when you, you know, get a really high AUC, people often will kind of hone in on that. But really, there's kind of three types of evaluations that we'll often do when it comes to these kinds of models. One is kind of a holistic evaluation of, can the model sort people who are high risk from those who are low risk? And that's where the AUC comes in. There's been great work published to show that just because you have a high AUC doesn't mean it's a useful model. And similarly, you can have a useful model even when the AUC is low, depending on the way that you wanna use it. The other kind of holistic thing that we look at is calibration. So one way in which a model can have a really high AUC uh, or error into the curve and be a, a, a not useful model is if it's very miscalibrated. And if you're relying on the actual predicted probabilities themselves for decision-making. So you can imagine how you know, you've got one model where it gives you a score of 10%. It, uh, and let's say you have the outcome, it gives a score of 8% to someone else who doesn't have the outcome. 
that's great. Like, you know, and if it does that all the time, it always gives people a higher score who have the outcome than those who don't, you'll have a perfect AUC. Now imagine you've got that same model, except you double the actual predictions. So instead of eight, it's giving you 16. Instead of, uh, you know, 10, it's giving you 20. So it's still gonna have this AUC of one. It's still gonna give you a score of 20 where it would have been 10 and 16 when it would have been eight. It's still correctly ranking people higher, right? But the actual predictions themselves are double. They're totally different. So if you implemented a risk threshold 10% or 12%, that model in practice is gonna behave totally differently in that environment where it's miscalibrated than an environment where it is properly calibrated. So that's always one of the things we look at. Um, and if a model has a poor AUC, it's typically gonna be poorly calibrated, but if it has a good AUC, it can also be poorly calibrated. And that's why those things are two things that people look at. Then the last measure that you know, we often will look at is uh, net benefit. When you actually want to use the model, then you typically have to think about you know, some kind of thresholding strategy where you have an intervention that you wanna deliver, you're gonna deliver it either to the top X number of patients, or you've got a threshold where above that threshold, you're gonna deliver it and below that threshold, you're gonna withhold that intervention. So particularly in that case, where you've got kind of this threshold that you, you wanna select, you can figure out whether a model can give you the appropriate level of performance based on the risk trade-off that you're willing to accept. But essentially it can help you figure out, is this model good enough? Selecting a threshold and seeing the net benefit of your model at that threshold and comparing it against alternate strategies. That's interesting. So the threshold itself is almost independent of the performance of the model. Yeah, so this is worth mentioning. I think there's a huge misconception in clinical AI, particularly among clinicians, but also among some, you know, some uh, uh, methodologists that you want to select your threshold based on the observed performance of the model. There are times where you kind of have to do that or you get backed into doing that. By and large, you don't want to do it that way. By and large, you want to understand the risk trade-off uh, upfront and then be able to tell a clinician, can the model achieve that level of risk trade-off? And then when, I, when I say risk trade-off, here's what I mean. How many patients would you personally be willing to get paged on for potential of sepsis to capture one case of having sepsis? If you told me, I'm willing to see 20 patients, as long, if we can capture one patient with sepsis, then I would say the appropriate threshold to set for that model is one over 20 or 5% based on decision theory. So not every clinician is gonna agree. So you're gonna ask a bunch of different clinicians and you'll come up with kind of an alerting range where you'd say somewhere in this range is where we wanna set our alerting threshold. Um, and you might even be able to tailor it for different clinicians if you wanted to. The idea isn't that you use the model and then see can the model deliver on that. Um, the idea is you set that up front and you see can my model achieve what I needed to achieve for the model to be useful to me? That's great. I think that really uh, emphasizes the importance of clinician buy-in from the beginning of model implementation itself. Because if you ask clinicians what they want, what they want is what they'll say they want is they want ninety percent sensitivity. What they don't say is, you know, uh, so if you got alerted on everyone, that model would have ninety percent sensitivity, but it would be completely useless. So typically, clinicians are very good at saying they want ninety percent sensitivity. They're not as good at saying what trade-off they're willing to accept to get that 90% sensitivity. So having that conversation upfront, you know, we've definitely found that to be really helpful, helping guide clinicians in kind of upfront before we even do kind of any evaluation. 
And along the lines of kind of bringing clinicians uh, into the mix up front and um, just kind of having open communications, one of the themes that stands out in your work, this paper, the Annals of ATS paper, the JAMA Network open paper is this call for transparency. Can you tell us what transparency means to you in the context of predictive algorithms? People can hone in on different aspects of transparency. And I think the very basic transparency that I think you know, uh, we need as a research community, as a clinical community, is just what variables are going into my model. And I think you know, when we're using these models, we're accountable to the end users. And we might be the end users in the sense that we're the ones interacting with many of these models, particularly early warning systems. But we're doing that you know, to try to improve care for our patients. I really feel like in healthcare, any model that you're using, at the very minimum, what predictors go into it needs to be an important thing. And if you think about it, right, in, in the nephrology community, we've had, you know, like a months long discussion on whether race should be included in a model to predict your, uh, you know, glomerular filtration rate, which is like a very minimal, like four variable model. Uh, and that's taken like six months at the very minimum, maybe a year to sort out uh, as a community. But with a lot of, you know, these kind of early warning system models, there's like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 predictors. Clinicians don't most of the time realize, you know, what even goes into the model. So I think to me, that's the most important level of transparency. Uh, you know, ideally, yeah, it, it'd be great to know uh, how things are weighted. What's the functional form of the model? Is it, you know, a regression model? Is it a gradient boosted machine? What, what is it? But I actually think, you know, there's model transparency, like, you know, is it a black box model? Is it, you know, um, what is it? But, uh, but I think that the level of transparency we actually need to start with as a community is what is going into each model and make sure as a community, we agree that the things that are going into the model are not only important for the prediction, but are kind of things that we would be comfortable making decisions on the basis of. And I think there's many times where there are predictors that improve the model, but we would never be comfortable allocating care based on those factors. So, you know, those are the kinds of discussions I think we need to have well before, you know, these models kind of show up uh, as things we can turn on. I completely agree. I think, I mean, transparency is essential to build trust in the model and adoption of the models and just to know what we're actually going to be using it for. Do you think transparency is essential for the performance of the model itself? So here's why it might be. There are times where we are putting stuff in models that is very, very much related to the outcome itself. When you think of like, especially like early warning systems, like predicting, you know, which patient is going to end up in the ICU. If you really rewind back clinically and think about, you know, the different things that happen that get documented in the electronic health record, many of those uh, you have to really carefully think about, is this something that should go in my model? Is this fair to include? So what, what's the first thing that happens upstream from going to the ICU? an order gets put into transport that like, you know, come and transport this person or, you know, to the SWAT team or to the nursing team to, to transfer that patient over. Before that, there might be a code. Before that, there might be a rapid response. Before that, someone might've checked an arterial blood gas. And I think at each one of those steps, you have to think about, is that fair to put in the model? Is that, or is that something that indicates this person is on a one-way train that can only end up in the ICU? And it's kind of not fair to include, you know, especially if you put ICU call for ICU transport, that's going to be a perfect predictor of ending up in the ICU, but it's not going to be a helpful thing to put in the model. So it's important to know those kinds of things are in the model so that when someone tells you the performance is X, Y, Z, you can 
take that into context of what's going into it. Those are great points. And, you know, also thinking about the nature of disease changing, it would also be important to know what's going in the model. And one of the things I wanted to bring up, this phrase I saw in your JAMA network open paper, data set shift, in, in terms of what could be causing models performances to change in the current COVID-19 pandemic. It's, it's a fascinating concept, but I've never heard that phrase before. Um, could you describe the concept of data set shift? Yeah, so I think uh, many folks in clinical medicine may not be familiar with that term. There is a term that I think more people are familiar with on the informatics side, which is calibration drift, which is a related concept, but not the same exact thing. But it might help to start with calibration drift before I talk about data set shift. So the idea is, is if the rate of an outcome goes up, there is a chance that the model will be under predicting the level of risk for the same set of patients because the environment has changed. And in that case, the model can still do a really good job of figuring out you know, who's sick from those who are not sick, relatively speaking, like it's still correctly sorting them. The AUC is great, but the calibration kind of drops off over time and it gets miscalibrated. So that concept we refer to as calibration drift. Data set shift refers to kind of a more broad issue, which is that the joint distribution, the relationship between your predictors and the outcome can change due to changes in clinical practice, changes in the patient population, changes in infrastructure of the electronic health record. There's a number of things that can drive that kind of stuff. And so when COVID-19 happened, some of the ways in which someone behaves health-wise based on their vital signs coming in markedly changed. Uh, you know, someone coming in on a little bit of oxygen uh, without COVID-19, that person might've had one outcome in the pre-COVID-19 world and now might have a different outcome, especially during their first wave of COVID-19 where we didn't have any effective treatments um, and we also didn't have you know, access to vaccines. What we wanted to show in this kind of sepsis paper was we wanted to show just how much the sepsis scores changed in the hospital during COVID-19, not to illustrate that the model was actually having data set shift. We can't prove that without showing that, you know, the relationship between the scores and the ultimate onset of sepsis has changed. Uh, so we said, let's just look at how does the end user feel as a result of these changes in scores? And at, you know, our hospital, we actually ended up briefly shutting off alerts for a period of time as a result of nursing feedback that there were just simply too many alerts happening. And they were like, don't worry, we know all these people are sick. Like, <laughs> we don't need an alert to tell us that. You know, so even if the alerts were like true positives, it was kind of like there's fire all over. You don't need a smoke detector to tell you that you're in a room full of fire. We wanted to see, you know, how universal of an experience was that? And we found that, you know, there was some heterogeneity, but sepsis scores by and large went way up and they went up to an extent that, you know, using conventional alerting thresholds, you know, alerting would have gone up substantially. So in your position in your hospital's AI governance, how have you been thinking about these existing models that might be over alerting or not alerting enough or just changing with COVID-19? And what's been your approach to handling that situation? Yeah, so I think, you know, our AI governing group, the way we operate is we essentially support the work of other operational groups that uh, have 
focuses on specific outcomes or specific patient groups. So in the case of sepsis, you know, we don't own the issue of sepsis within our hospital. We play a support role to the kind of sepsis committee that we have for deterioration. We play a support role to our hospital CPR committee. In that way, you know, we are not a, you know, a in-house model development and, you know, command center team, our hospital actually does have a command center that, you know, is tightly integrated with our committee uh, that we, you know, meet with regularly. How we've been thinking about it is, you know, really just through model monitoring. In some cases, we've, you know, uh, briefly paused models, you know, COVID has changed the way practice is delivered. So some of the models that we were originally planning to implement, you know, have been put on indefinite pause because they don't make sense in the kind of new reality in the way that our clinical practice delivery has changed with the you know huge move to telehealth model monitoring i think is is, is kind of the main way that we're tracking this stuff and you know in the open line of communication with the clinical owners which for us we don't own any of the model area so it's not so much that you know we would on our own say we're going to look at this model and see how good it is from this vendor really it's usually a, you know a operational request or a research request or you know, a request that comes in around a disease area or a problem that we have clinically. And we support that group in trying to find and evaluate, you know, solutions. Yeah, I think these kind of committees that monitor models and kind of connect these different groups is really important. And one of the big takeaways I get from your work is that there's a lot of algorithms out there. There's a lot of models doing a lot of different things. And what we need to start doing now is testing the effects of algorithm implementation um, prospectively in the real world. So what's your advice to implementation scientists out there? So I think my advice wouldn't be to the implementation scientists. It would actually be to the clinicians is to work with an implementation scientist. I think, you know, most clinical researchers are not equipped to kind of figure out what are barriers to implementation and design and implementation in a smart way. And to then, you know, design a study design in a smart way that lets you figure out whether if your implementation fails, that it actually in fact did fail. I think implementation science uh, has been a kind of under-recognized area as kind of its own science. Many times folks within informatics think that implementation science is kind of a branch of informatics, but there is a solid you know, uh, field of study around implementation science. So partnering with folks with that expertise is how you get these quality, you know, papers like the one from uh, Gabriel Escobar and Minnie Liu out of Kaiser. I think, you know, these high quality studies will only be able to happen with that uh, partnership. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a translational group uh, within our health system or within our university called Precision Health that has an implementation work group that I, that, that I, uh, that I chair. And so that group, you know, we're trying to think of how do we pair up uh, researchers with implementation scientists to kind of carry out this kind of work in a high quality manner. Dr. Singh, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for being on the podcast and I look forward to more work like this from you in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you and colleagues at ATS. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to The Elevator Pitch. Join us next time for the big picture behind the latest critical care studies.